Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866 609 All right, this is episode number 49 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, December 20th. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. All right, now, before we get to the news, let me just tell you, if you've been trying to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage in this country. You may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete their entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, now, uh, before I get to the warning from the Biden regime to the unvaccinated, before I get to what they're trying to divert your attention from, a couple of things I got to tell you. I don't know if you've ever been rear-ended by a vehicle going at a high rate of speed. I hope you haven't. But that's exactly what happened to me. Friday afternoon after the show. I was on my way to have lunch with a buddy of mine about 2.30 in the afternoon and um, uh, in, in Little Rock. I was on a road called Colonel Glen Road, which is a, a four-lane road for those folks outside central Arkansas. And I was stopped behind like four or five vehicles waiting for a light to turn green where 36th Street hits Colonel Glen Road. And if you're four or five cars back, you're actually in a little bridge. And I'm talking to somebody on the phone on the Bluetooth, hands-free. And as a matter of fact, I was talking to uh, one of my uh, business partners, a fellow named Donnie Copeland, used to be in the legislature here in uh, 
in Arkansas and uh, pastor of a church in North Little Rock. Anyway, as I'm talking to him, I'm looking at my rearview mirror, and I see a, a silver Kia compact car headed my way like a runaway train. And next thing you know, he hits me hard. I said, Donnie, I got to go, man. I just got hit. So I'm calling 911. Looked like he's doing 45 miles an hour. I mean, it's hard to tell when you only have a second or two to try to judge, but he was didn't even tap his brakes. Didn't even tap his brakes. Uh, about 20, 25 minutes later, after both cars are just sitting there on this little bridge in the right-hand lane, the uh, fire truck gets there, and shortly thereafter, the police got there. And... Um, Police officer said, why don't you move on up, find a parking lot on up the street a little bit. I mean, ordinarily, when you're in an accident, you're trying to, you're supposed to move over to the side of the road. Um, but the parking lot was far enough, the first parking lot was far enough away that uh, I, I felt like I'd be leaving the scene of an accident until I got off the bridge and moved to a parking lot. So anyway, I didn't do that until the police got there. So um, I told the officers that um, this guy, I, I mean, you know, like I say, like a runaway train. And uh, and a big thank you to Little Rock Police Officers Worthington and Poole. Uh, they were the, uh, the height of professionalism. Appreciate everything. But I asked, I said, I mean, the guy's not trying to blame the wreck on me, is he? And they're like, well, you know, it's not the officer's uh, uh, position to try to assign blame. I'm like, no, 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 I understand that, but I just kind of wonder what he said. Well, he said that uh, he just couldn't stop the car. I'm like, really? And they said, well, he's elderly. And, um, you know, we're going to make him take a new DMV test, you know, implying that he probably shouldn't be driving. Because I'm thinking at the time, if you're so whack, if you're so out of it that you can't tell the difference between the gas and the and the brake, then, yeah, you're going to have a hard time trying to stop the car. Um, if I had any idea that the guy who hit me was like in his 80s, I would have gotten out of the car and checked to see if he's okay. They said he seemed to be fine. I'm like, seriously? Because the whole front end of his car was just mangled. And... Um, as was the back of my car. But uh, for all I knew, it was some guy in a gang with a gun upset that I didn't get out of his way, you know? So I never got out of the car until we got to the collision center. But anyway, um, there's very little you can do. Uh, I'm in the right lane waiting for behind four or five vehicles, waiting for a light to change. I don't have time to move into the left lane. I mean, I looked up just a second or two before he hit me. I had no no time to react whatsoever. So, you know, I got to call the insurance company and uh, get a rental and all that. And, uh, um. I was asked if I wanted to go to the hospital. And I'm thinking, okay, um, 
what's the point of going to an ER where they're just going to give me some drugs to try to mask whatever whiplash I'm going to be experiencing here in the next 24 to 48 hours? There's no point doing that whatsoever. I know what I needed to do. I called the Arkansas Cervical Center, my friend Dr. J.R. Crabtree, and he saw me that evening and took x-rays of my uh, head and my neck, and he adjusted my atlas. Now, if this is your first time listening to Doc Washburn's show, you're like, all right, what's that all about? Well, here's the deal. And listen closely because this is the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, the C1, which only weighs about 2 ounces. So it's really easy for the atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, digestive system, even your circulatory system. It can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain. Uh, if you've been having issues ever since you were in an automobile accident, and could grief, there are a lot of them this time of year, do yourself a favor. If you're in central Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center at 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're outside central Arkansas, and most of the people who listen to Doc Washburn's show are, go to the website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on the tab that says find a doctor to find one that's close to you. So, Because, I mean, when I first got my atlas adjusted years ago, it was like coming up out of the ether because I realized I'd been in several automobile accidents in the 20 years before that. And I, without even knowing it, I was walking around kind of in a, in a fog with this steady low-grade neck pain and headache and all that, and it went away. Anyway, a lot to be thankful for, a lot to be thankful for. Now, um, I want to get to... I want to get to the uh, the White House's statement about the unvaccinated. I want to get to uh, who really orchestrated what happened at the Capitol on January 6th and why the FBI, after all the hundreds of people they've arrested, refused to arrest this person. But first, but first, former President Trump and again, obviously, the election was stolen from him in November of 2020. But former President Trump was on Sunday Morning Futures on Fox News with Maria Bartiromo yesterday morning. Um, and it didn't go well for him. And, and it's not because she was trying to make it not go well for him. It's just you, know, you got to have the right answers. And he didn't. And here's, here's what happened. Anthony Fauci misled the Senate when he said that the NIH did not fund the gain-of-function research. Um, should you have fired Fauci? So a lot of people asked me that question, and I did it right. 
Because if you do fire him, you're going to have a fire cell on the left again, as usual. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Since when has that stopped you from anything? Didn't you have a firestorm on the left, as usual, when you nominated Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court? Didn't you have a firestorm on the left, as usual, when you nominated Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court? Didn't you have a firestorm on the left, as usual, when you nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court? You let Fauci stay in office because you don't want a firestorm on the left? What are you talking about? Firestorm on the left means you're doing the right thing. Good grief. But there's more. Um, And I didn't listen to him, if you think about it. No, you did listen to him. You listened to him and Burks, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Deborah Burks, when I think about it, in March of last year, when you decided to shut the country down just for 15 days to slow the spread. You did listen to him. He wanted to keep our country open to China, and I closed it. He wanted to keep our country open to Europe, and I closed it. He talked about masks being no good. Well, I'm not a huge mask believer, but I think they have some purpose. But he wanted to close down the country, and you said, okay. And now he's a radical masker. I mean, everything he's done, he's a great promoter. He's a bad pitcher. He was telling me what a great athlete he was. I said, you can't throw a baseball 15 feet. I I never saw that was other than President Obama. It may be the worst throw I've ever seen to home plate. What does it have to do with anything? Now, are you losing it? Uh, No, I think I did the right thing because we would have had a fire. So who cares? That shows you're doing the right thing. Oh, man, are you kidding me? We would have had a firestorm. Less of a firestorm now if he was fired, because he's been wrong so often. But if you think of it, he... Wait. Less of a firestorm now if he's fired because he's been wrong so often? Number one, Biden's not going to fire him. Number two, the left doesn't know he's been wrong so often. They don't pay attention. They worship the guy. Good grief. But if you think of it, he wanted to keep our country open to China, Europe, and all these places... And I didn't do it. If you think of it, he wanted to shut down the country, and you did do it. I'm sorry. That's that's disqualifying. Please, don't run. Don't run. You haven't learned anything. Did a lot of great stuff. Appreciate all the good stuff you did. Had the best economy going in the history of the world, thanks to your economic policies. Up until the middle of March last year, did a lot of great stuff. And they stole it from you. Because they talked you into uh, shutting down the uh, the country on a virus that has a 99.8% survival rate. And you still won't admit that you made any mistakes. I mean, seriously? We're supposed to take this seriously. I did it right. Because if you do fire him, you're going to have a fire cell on the left again, as usual. That's what you want. That's what you want. It's it's just nuts. And I didn't listen to him, if you think about it. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Over the weekend, uh, Trump was with Bill O'Reilly on a stage somewhere. He said something that got some uh, of his supporters kind of upset. Both the president and I are vaxxed. And uh, did you get the booster? Yes. I got it, too. Okay, so... Um... Oh, don't, 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 don't,
That's all. It's a very tiny group over there. It wasn't a tiny group. People are not happy with you continuing to push this. Just so you know. Just so you know. People are not happy that you continue to push this. Hey, uh, Brian, come here for a second, okay? Got to get my producer in the room for a second. Yeah, see if you can take care of that, okay? Can you do that? Yes. Okay, great, because I don't know how. I'm technologically challenged. All right, anyway. um, So my buddy Kenny says here on the – on the Podbean Live, Trump should have fired Fauci. Congress, especially Republicans, should have defended Fauci. I think he means defunded. You know, we all do typos. But, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, now, um, has anybody seen Has anybody seen the statement that the White House came out with uh, threatening the unvaccinated among us? The White House saying we are intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work and school for the vaccinated. Yeah, that'd be easy. It's a mild cold, but you lie a lot. Says you've done the right thing and we'll get through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals. You may soon overwhelm. Oh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Uh, Jeff Zintz. Z as in zebra, I E N. T.S. is counselor to um, the usurper. I'm not going to call him president. Counselor to the usurper. And he's also the uh, White House COVID-19 coordinator. And so, yeah, he even put some audio out there. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death. For yourselves, your families, in the hospitals, you may soon overwhelm. Yeah, I tell you what. Tell you what, Mr. Zinks, with all due respect, and there is none due, go take a long walk off a short pier. What do you say, pal? Preferably somewhere in Maine, where it's nice and chilly. What do you say? How about that? Now, Dinesh D'Souza, the author, Dinesh D'Souza, responded saying, What's revealing here is the tone, insensitive, contemptuous, vindictive. How very Joe Biden, this well-packaged so-called moderate, so-called unifier, who turns out to be just a callous, nasty old man. And somebody responded, somebody who goes by Sorrell Third on Twitter said, Mr. D'Souza, you've usually got a good ear for language and usage. This wasn't written by Biden. Read it again. That is both the language and attitude of Barack Obama. Precisely, language like drawing and writing reveals everything about everyone. And I got to think about that. And I wonder maybe if it does sound like Obama. Let's see. We are intent on letting Omicron take two. We are intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work 
and school for the vaccinated. You've done the right thing, and we will get through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. Yeah, overwhelming hospitals by getting a mild cold. I don't know. I think if I had a mild cold, I probably wouldn't go to the hospital. What is the deal, by the way, with uh, people up, uh, people in Massachusetts, Harvard Square, standing in line for hours Saturday morning with no symptoms to see if they test positive for something? I mean, seriously? On the for reals? It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. All right, now, that having been said, that having been said, so what are they trying to distract us from today? I mean, other than West Virginia, United States Senator Joe Manchin shutting down Build Back Better, what are they trying to distract us? Oh, 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 by the way, you know, um, Dementia Joe has this urgent message and warning for the unvaccinated. They announced Friday it's so urgent they're going to wait uh, four days till Tuesday for him to uh, announce it on the television, right? That's how urgent it is. Wait four days. I guess they have to go through some kind of... um a drug regimen with him, right? To make sure that he can actually get through a five or 10 minute speech. They have to plan these things out in advance. Know what I'm saying? Anyway, um, so I think, I think I, I think I might know what they're trying to distract us from. So this came out Saturday from the great Darren J. Beatty over at Revolver.News. Article entitled, Meet Ray Epps, Part 2, Damning New Details. Emerge exposing massive web of unindicted operators at the heart of January 6th. Okay? Here goes. Six weeks ago, Revolver News published a blockbuster investigative report on Ray Epps, a man who, more than any other individual, appears to be the key to unlocking the question of active federal involvement in the so-called capital siege of January 6th. Out of all the thousands of January 6th protesters and the thousands of hours of publicly available footage from that fateful day, Ray Epps has turned out to be perhaps the only person nailed dead to rights confessing on camera to plotting a pre-planned attack on the Capitol. On both January 5th and January 6th, Ray Epps announced multiple times at multiple locations his upcoming plot to breach the U.S. Capitol. He then spent hours attempting to recruit hundreds of other people to join him. On top of it all, Ray Epps was seen leading key people and managing key aspects of the initial breach 
of the Capitol grounds himself. Now, let me play a little bit of audio from the video that's embedded in this article at Revolver.News. Here's Ray Epps the night of January 5th as some people catch on to him. Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. No! They know he's the Fed. That's not hard to figure out. All right, here he is again. Ray Epps. Tomorrow, I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. Well, let's not say it. We need need to go. I'll say it. All right. We need to go into the Capitol. (laughs) We need to go into the Capitol. I didn't see that coming. Okay. I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. No, you won't. No, you won't. He wasn't arrested. Okay, Ray Epps at the Capitol, January 6th. We are speaking. We are going to the Capitol where our problems are. It's that direction. Please spread the word. Leading people to the Capitol on January 6th. And last but not least, Ray Epps giving a guy with him some directions about what to do going into the Capitol, right outside of it. All right, no, Dave, but one more thing. Yeah, so can we go up there? No? When we go in. Are we going to get arrested if we go up there? Yeah. You don't need to get shot. arrest us all? All right. Now, back to Darren J. Beatty's blockbuster new article at revolver.news. He says, it would be one thing if Ray Epps' repeated calls on January 5th to go into the Capitol had simply amounted to bluster, but Epps followed through on his stated mission to shepherd others inside. In clips four through six of the above compilation, we see Ray Epps actively orchestrate elements of the very first breach of the Capitol barricades at 12.50 p.m. while Trump still had 20 minutes left in his rally speech. Okay, now, clips four through six I haven't played for you because it's just a lot of noise, audio-wise. But video-wise, you see what he's doing. Darren J. Beatty says, It's noteworthy that this Ray Epps breach occurs just one minute after Capitol Police began responding to reports of two supposed pipe bombs located Democrat and Republican headquarters, respectively. Rather conveniently, the already handicapped Capitol Police thus had still fewer resources with which to respond to the barricade breach in question. While the pipe bomb story turned out to be a dud, the Ray Epps breach proved fateful. Today, the official stories told by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the U.S. Justice Department all depict all depict the apparent Ray Epps orchestrated 12.50 p.m. initial breach of metal barricades as the Big Bang event of January 6th. In large part, this description is hardly an exaggeration. Indeed, it was the 12.50 p.m. breach of the Capitol grounds in conjunction with a handful of suspicious individuals ripping down fencing and signage that set in motion the conditions 
allowing for January 6th to turn from a rally into a riot. And this report will blow open the network of still unindicted key, key operators who appear to have been at work either with or around Ray Epps during the initial Capitol grounds breach. You, dear reader, he says, or dear listener, I would say, will be scandalized, though perhaps unsurprised, to learn that none of the actors covered in this report have received attention in the mainstream press despite their active and indispensable roles in the events of January 6, 2021. As we explained in detail in our previous report, the FBI originally put Ray Epps' face on its capital violence most wanted list on January 8, 2021, just two days after January 6. They offered a cash reward for information leading to his arrest. In fact, rank-and-file FBI agents initially deemed Ray Epps' role as an apparent riot organizer so important that they named him suspect number 16, one of the, high, one of the first 20 high-profile FBI targets in a database now packed with more than 500 suspects. Then, six months later, actually five and a half, but anyway, both revol- on June 30th, 2021, both Revolver News and the New York Times published inconvenient stories that encouraged a more aggressive interrogation of the Ray Epps third rail, leading reasonable people to wonder why this publicly identified man on the most wanted list still had no charges filed against him. The FBI responded to these important media stories the very next day. But their response was to quietly purge all online Ray Epps files from their website. Then switch to a posture of what? Who? Ray Epps. Never heard of him. Agents of the FBI field office in Phoenix, where Ray Epps lives, have gone so far as to explicitly deny knowledge that Ray Epps even exists. Instead of pursuing Ray Epps, FBI agents have instead pursued journalists who had the temerity to ask Ray Epps in person if he was government operative. All Ray Epps would tell the journalists is, I understand that, but I can't say anything. So, uh, let's give you a quick synopsis of this timeline. January 8th through July 1st. First of all, FBI makes Ray Epps a top suspect on this most wanted list. Multiple calls for public health, for public help to identify him. Cash reward offered for information leading to his arrest. So the public and even local newspapers identify Ray Epps living in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, July July 1st to the present. On July 1st, the FBI suddenly deletes Ray Epps from its database after press exposure. They don't arrest him, and they don't explain why they delete him off of all their public pronouncements about looking for January 6th people. U.S. Attorney General refused to answer questions about the possibility of federal agents being there on January 6th. And FBI agents of Phoenix, Arizona, deny all knowledge that Ray Epps exists. So the sham congressional January 6th commission seems to be going along with the charade of the Ray Epps denialism for all of its recent gesticulations about Mark Meadows' benign text messages. 
The January 6th committee in the U.S. House has yet to express even a basic interest in Ray Epps or his communications leading up to and on January 6th. But the specter of Ray Epps and the ominous questions his immunity raises loom too large to be memory-hold by poorly coordinated efforts of government denial. In light of all this, it's both amusing and symbolically appropriate that despite the FBI's attempt to purge Ray Epps's face from its wanted database and public denials of his existence from authorized agents, the FBI D.C. field office, okay? The FBI field office in Washington, D.C. still features Ray Epps as a wanted man in its current pinned tweet on Twitter. Now, for those of you not on Twitter, a pinned tweet is the tweet you want people to see front and center at the top of your profile when somebody goes to your profile on Twitter. And they have an image of like about 20 wanted people, and Ray Epps is one of them. Still, to this day. If Ray Epps turns out to have been some kind of government operative, which at present is the only clean and simple explanation for his immunity from arrest, it would then be game over for the official narrative of some sort of MAGA insurrection on January 6th. Ray Epps was the day's loudest riot recruiter and the apparent leader of the very first breach of Capitol Grounds. If Ray Epps is the Fed, the so-called insurrection becomes the Fed-surrection in one fell swoop. These are the stakes at play in unraveling the Ray Epps enigma. But it's imperative to note that if Ray Epps was just a cog in a much larger federal operation, he would not have been deployed alone. Historically speaking, when the feds have orchestrated fake mobs of fake protesters or contrived fake conspiratorial plots, the Fed's own assets have commonly comprised between 16 to 25 percent of the plot's participants, at least in its key respects. Indeed, the FBI once flew in 1,600 rowdy spooks to infiltrate a single convention with just 10,000 protesters, and they linked to that. May 30th, 2020. Nothing is certain but death, taxes, and police infiltration of U.S. protests. Video circulating of a white man casually smashing the windows of a Minneapolis shop in a hammer with a hammer during protests against the police murder of George Floyd. The man's clearly trying to hide his identity by wearing a gas mask, carrying a large umbrella, wearing full-length black clothing. Protesters can be seen intervening to stop his destructive behavior in the in the video. One of them asks, are you a effing cop? And it goes on and on and on. Wow. Anyway, long article. We can't get sidetracked on that one. In recent times, attacks blamed on right-wing militias have blown past the 16% mark on the federal saturation index and have been clocking in at a whopping 25 to 50%, as Revolver News has previously noted. Students of FBI history should quickly absorb the lesson that infiltrating feds are like roaches. Whenever you spot one, it's guaranteed there are dozens of others nearby. Feds 
simply never, ever operate alone. This is how you end up with at least 12 FBI informants in a tiny so-called right-wing militia in Michigan plot from October 2020. That's just informants, not even agents. 15 informants in the right-wing 2016 Malher plot, dozens in the 2014 Bundy Ranch affair, including six FBI undercover agents posing as fake documentarians shooting a fake documentary, and the list goes on and on. So, if Ray Epps was instructed by the government to play his part in various recruiting, breaching, and crowd control efforts that day, we would expect many other informants to be set up around him. To test this hypothesis, Revolver News spent the last six weeks comprehensively mapping Ray Epps's network of interactions on January 6th and profiling the key people around him who complemented his efforts. says we did a deep dive into, well, can't read if uh, that happens. Okay. We did a deep dive into other key figures involved in the initial breach of the Capitol grounds, as well as figures who played an instrumental role in fence removal and crowd control. In short, we investigated key players whose early actions on January 6th turned the rally into a riot. The bad news for Fed direction deniers is the results are in, and they look even worse for the FBI than Revolver's already low expectations. For brevity, we profile five of the most egregious cases in this report and tell the story on how they crossed paths and interacted with, and in some cases coordinated with Ray Epps to make January 6th possible. Some of these cases are so wild as to constitute Ray Epps-sized scandals unto themselves. All right, now, uh, Brian, could you come here for a second? Because I'm trying not to get in the way of our, our IT guys. Let's see. Yeah, Brian Coolis, could you come here for a second? Okay. But first, it's important to note that feds at the mere informant level are seldom told by their handlers of the presence of other government informants around them. From each individual informant's perspective, the agitators around them would look as lawless to them as they did to the crowd. The exact strange, this exact strange situation played out in the climax of the Whitmer kidnapping plot. The car, the prosecutors say, cased the government's house, had five passengers, two homeless patsies, and three secret feds. But only the agent-level fed in the car had total operational awareness. Each of the two informants in the car probably thought the other was a legitimate insurrectionist. So, it is not necessary for all or any of the individuals covered in this report to know each other or to have affirmatively worked together to have formed a team through collective effort. A simple text message from the federal, from a federal handler to, quote, be at the Peace Monument at 12.45 p.m. and flush out the crazies, unquote, would be all that's needed for a large ring of provocateurs to simultaneously be in the same place at the same time, contributing to the same breach. So, now, without further ado, 
we will tell the true documented story. On January 6th, that the regime doesn't want you to hear. Involving key unindicted figures the regime would prefer that you never heard of. Hey, Brian Coolis, come here for a sec. If there was such a thing as an unbiased January 6th commission that sought to piece together the accurate timeline and narrative of events of January 6th, the following study would be the sort of thing it would publish. Revolver makes no facial allegation about any of the individuals below, however, some very serious, shocking, and time-sensitive questions are raised by this report. To that extent, our accusations and demands are aimed squarely at the U.S. Justice Department, FBI Director Christopher Wray, and Attorney General Merrick Garland have an awful lot of explaining to do. Okay, first, the booby trap that turned a rally into a riot. Before we get acquainted with the key unindicted players operating around Ray Epps, let's quickly touch upon the basic facts of the initial breach of the Capitol grounds. The so-called Big Bang moment that kicked off the riot was when a small breach team of just a few dozen people violently knocked over the first set of medical metal barricades between 12.50 and 12.53 p.m. They forced back the police and therefore opened a clean walkway entrance to the crowd behind them. We'll hereafter refer to this location of barriers as the Ray Epps breach site. And the collection of individuals responsible for the critical initial breach as the Ray Epps breach team. Clips from that breach scene with Ray Epps standing front and center giving out directions are republished. In this article, the video clips, this same breach team then proceeded to haul the metal police barricades off to the side, tear down signage that said restricted area. Now, remember, this is before the Trump speech is over. And systematically remove protective fencing from the Capitol law. Ordinarily, with no barriers in place, this entire area of the Capitol lawn is open to the public. To get a geographical sense of the Ray Epps crime scene, they got an image here showing where the Capitol's rear barricades and fencing were first attacked. This area is also known as the Peace Monument. The Peace Monument. So the tactical importance of this breached location is that it was the very first walkway entrance into the Capitol grounds that every Trump supporter would arrive at as they walked from the Trump rally to the Capitol. The Ray Epps breach team had the amazing foresight to pry open the one walkway entrance that no one could avoid. As anybody looking at the article could see, both the Pennsylvania Avenue and the Constitution Avenue exits from the Trump speech intersect at the exact Peace Monument barricade targeted in advance, again, while Trump is still speaking, by the Ray Epps breach team. If any of the eight other walkway entrances into the Capitol grounds had been toppled instead, tens of thousands of marchers would have been met by police and metal barricades instead of an open gate. The Ray Epps breach team thus set up a booby trap by pushing back the police, then hauling away the restricted area signage, the chain fencing, and the metal barricades, 
all while tens of thousands were still at the Trump rally. Without police present or do not enter signs prominently visible, people leaving Trump's speech and arriving at the Capitol entrance would have no idea it was illegal to walk through the gate or onto the lawn or up to the Capitol steps. After all, this entire area is ordinarily open to the public. Instead, they heard friendly music and saw the main walkway to the Capitol grounds wide open. These unwitting Trump supporters had no idea they had just crossed an invisible tripwire that would later subject them to federal prosecution for trespassing. And they have a video embedded here of Ray Epps and his team getting all this stuff out of the way so as to, uh, again, set up the Trump supporters. Moreover, the giant main component of Trump protesters will not arrive at this Capitol entrance until 50 minutes after the Ray Epps breach team opened up the walkway. Trump had 20 minutes left in his speech, and it took at least 30 minutes to walk to the Peace Monument. This giant component arrived at the entrance and saw hundreds of people already inside the Capitol grounds. They would no longer stage their protests back behind the fencing because the breach team, booby trappers, had already hauled most of it away before they got there. The giant component, therefore, walked all the way up to the Capitol building itself. As we described in more detail, in our October 10th report, the Ray Epps breach team thus set up what may amount to the largest legal booby trap in American history. Indeed, when the DOJ indicted Oath Keeper Jeremy Brown in September for trespassing on restricted grounds, the Justice Department explained that any January 6th protester who stepped foot within the red line below had committed a federal crime and could be kept in prison without bail until the criminal trial over 12 months away. And they have an aerial photograph of the Capitol with a red line around it, which, of course, nobody could see that day. But how did this happen? Who exactly pulled it off, and how does it all trace back to Ray Epps? In our October 10th Revolver report, we show January 6th footage of one dark-complected man coolly and methodically cutting down and then rolling up restricted area fencing around the Capitol lawn. He had no Trump gear on and made sure to wear dark sunglasses on a cloudy day. He was not angry. He was dispassionate, calm, and professional, like he was just there to do a job. And they have the video of him doing the job embedded in the article. Then another picture to make perfectly clear what he was doing and how strange and methodical it was. This man remains unindicted. In fact, the FBI does not even appear to even be looking for him. He is completely absent from the FBI Capital Most Wanted list. There is no reward for information leading to his arrest. For perspective, the FBI's Most Wanted list features plenty of MAGA grandmas and teens who committed no property crimes or physical damage at all at all for instance you can still win a cash reward for information leading to the arrest of fbi most wanted suspect number 342 and she looks like an elderly grandma this is uh this is some fascinating stuff This is some absolutely fascinating stuff. 
but I got to take a drink of water. Can can you can you give me just a half a minute? G- give me just a half a minute. All right. You're listening to the Doc Washburn Show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. You can now listen live weekdays, noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time at DocWashburnShow.com. Podcast available at DocWashburnShow.com and for download at Spotify, iTunes, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. We are on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at DocWashburnShow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. All right, very good, very good. Right back to the Revolver.News article here. Despite the FBI's lack of interest in this brazen booby trapper seen rolling up restricted area fencing, online researchers have stayed on the case. They have dubbed this individual Fence Cutter Bulwark, with Bulwark being the brand name of his fire-retardant jacket designed for professional use in the oil and gas industry. And it says here you'll see more fire-retardant jackets among the unindicted below, and they have more pictures. Fence Cutter Bulwark was raiding right next to the Ray Epps breach site at 12.31 p.m. That's a full 20 minutes before the breach kicked off. There he was doing nothing except looking out past the fencing he would later take down. Moreover, 12.31 p.m. is 17 minutes before the large group of 220-some marching Proud Boys arrived at the Peace Monument from their lunch break. Now, here's why that matters. The official January 6th story, as parroted by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and HBO, is that the Proud Boys' arrival at the Peace Monument at 12.48 p.m. is what sparked a sudden breach. But the fact that fence-cutter Bulwark and other key operators, until now ignored by mainstream media, were already waiting in place while the Proud Boys were still a mile away eating lunch, suggests a more sinister possibility. Foreknowledge of an imminent breach at this exact location. If it were just this fence-cutter bulwark guy hanging out near the breach site before the Proud Boys' arrival, we might chalk it up to coincidence, but the presence of multiple key breach figures waiting here seems too much to be coincidental. So then they have a video continuously recorded between 1240 and 1250 p.m. where you see Ray Epps already in position at the exact walkway entrance. The breach team will pry open at least six minutes before they arrive. In fact, we know he was there 45 minutes before they arrived. But it's not just Ray Epps and this guy they call Fence Cutter Bulwark who appeared to have been waiting for the Proud Boys. Perched right across from Fence Cutter Bulwark at 12.31 p.m. is a man widely regarded by online researchers as the most infamous of all unindicted January 6th riot leaders. A man unmentioned in the mainstream press but elevated to legendary status online as Northwest Scaffold Commander. Don't let looks deceive you. This extremely peculiar middle-aged man with glasses, a nerdy mask, and a blue ball cap has been assigned more notoriety by deep researchers than arguably any other person of the thousands they've indexed. Northwest Scaffold Commander's frenetic whirlwind of activities and apparent role as the ringleader of the breach 
have made him the subject of Russiagate-level rumor and speculation that he was privy to a January 6th master plan. Northwest Scaffold Commander, we'll call him just Scaffold Commander for short, gets his name from being the ostensible commander of the prominent media tower that overlooked the Capitol's back terrace on January 6th. Now, you've probably seen this tower in pictures. It's a tall, temporary structure built in November 2020 so the media crews could properly film the January 2021 inauguration ceremony. And so they have a picture of what it looks like without people around right in front of the Capitol. Then they have another picture of what it looked like on January 6th with Scaffold Commander and his crew controlling it. So what you can see here in the article is the tower is the most perfect command post that anyone seeking to monitor and direct the Capitol crowd could possibly hope for. It stands front and center. Everybody can see it. And the man high atop it can see and scream down to one and all. One can only imagine the damage a highly aggressive and monomaniacally focused breach leader could do from this perch if he had zero scruples, a plan to attack the Capitol, and an extremely loud megaphone. If you've seen any midday January 6th footage, you've probably seen Scaffold Commander in action without knowing it. From high atop the tower between 1 p.m. and 2.30 p.m., Scaffold Commander issued the iconic bellows and nonstop commands that are loud and clear on almost every video clip from January 6th filmed in that time interval. For nearly 90 minutes straight, he bombards the otherwise leaderless crowd below him with endless variations on a single instruction. Don't just stand there. Keep moving forward. But once the crowd had continuously moved forward for over an hour, the very first handful of rioters entered the building. Scaffold commander suddenly threw the switch. He started saying, okay, we're in, we're in. Come on, we got to fill up the Capitol. Come on, come now. We need help. We got to fill up the Capitol. They got in. So then they have a clip which is checkmate. It should make Scaffold Commander one of the top criminal suspects on the entire FBI Capitol most wanted list. Spoiler alert, he isn't even on the list and no charges have been filed. And The FBI to date has still never acknowledged his existence. Okay. So let me see. Let me see if I can play that one on the air. Wouldn't this be interesting? And I, uh, I've not listened to this beforehand. So I apologize if there's any profanity. I hope there's not. But here we go. Thank you. 
Wow. For perspective, it's important to step into the shoes of January 6th rally goers to see just how dominant and pervasive scaffold commander's influence was over the crowd's psychology the entire time. Rally goers could hear his confident and constant commands with total clarity all the way back at the entrance to the Capitol lawn. For new entrants arriving at the Capitol grounds, scaffold commander's voice would be the first and loudest voice they heard. He even mixed in damsel in distress type appeals so new arrivals would perceive that moving forward would be doing their part to rescue innocent Trump supporters who, quote, need your help, unquote. Okay, we got another video here. Somebody in the back over here keeps shouting, push forward. So the video was taken from the entrance to the Capitol grounds, and you could hear the guy in the loudspeaker all the way back. Move forward, we need help. His high-pressure megaphone instructions were a constant mental and social pressure on a captive audience who was there for an entirely different reason to peacefully participate in what they were told was a lawful Trump rally. But a loud, authoritative voice literally coming from on high, pleading that people need your help and asking you to simply and lawfully move forward creates a strong suction effect to comply with authority. One attendee described this unnatural pressure in a vividly detailed Twitter thread a few days after January 6th. She fingered Scaffold Commander as the ringleader of the operation. Another attendee who was later arrested said he was just following the instructions of the man with the bullhorn yelling, Patriots, move forward. That would be Scaffold Commander. But the FBI affidavit refuses to mention the Tower Commander with a giant bullhorn shouting at tens of thousands of people to fill up the Capitol for 90 minutes straight because, according to the FBI, he doesn't exist. Wait. He doesn't exist. Oh, my goodness. And they got a link to an FBI.gov page. And he's certainly not on there. A lot of other people are. But not this guy. Not this guy. But the clip below is perhaps a dead giveaway into what was truly going on. Here, a second man in the tower, the similarly unindicted Tower Man Male 19, begins to read a prepared, hand-printed speech out loud to the crowd. The speech was sappy and idealistic, waxing philosophical about how cancel culture is bad and election processes need reform, but Scaffold Commander had no interest in letting the bullhorn be used to communicate Trump-aligned concerns or election-related solutions. He quickly grew angry and chastised his tower associate for losing focus, saying, tell them to move forward. That's all they need to know right now. Tell them to move forward. So here you go. They seek to ruin our lives for disagreeing with them. Indeed, as has happened with our justice system, no longer do they seek the truth, but only to win by any means necessary. Now, when we look at the organizations that fit this description and the people who run them, it becomes rather apparent that... 
So, so the, uh, <laughs> this is crazy. The scaffold commander starts yelling over him, telling him to move forward. That's all they need to know now. That statement, that's all they need to know right now, seems to all but confirm that scaffold commander had a two-stage breach plan, which he stuck to with monomaniacal focus. For the first 70 minutes, the only objective was to move the pawns forward up the board until as much pressure as possible had been placed on the building itself. Then, once a single breacher had made it inside, he immediately hit the bullhorn bait-and-switch. Move forward gave way to his real imperative, fill up the capital. Yet the whole time, he never gave a reason. He was simply a man on a mission. Now, we've seen this type of singular dedication before in Ray Epps. A man who was loud and insistent, aggressive but lacked conviction, had a lust for action but wanted others to do it. So here's a fun supercut we put together of Ray Epps telling other protesters we need to go inside the Capitol and that everything besides that singular objective was what Ray Epps called losing focus, a distraction, doesn't matter, not what we're here for. That is effectively a mirror of what Scaffold Commander was doing on the bullhorn above him. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. That's not why we're here. That's not why we're here. Listen, you can't focus on too many. Our seats. Our enemy is not other Americans. Our enemy is a female team. Our enemy is a people pulling the strings. You're fucking retarded. You kind of put out the two. How old are you, man? It doesn't matter right now. Let me tell you. Well, it does. It doesn't matter. That's not what we're here for. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Not what we're here for. Why are you fighting with the truth? This isn't the day for that. Yes, it is. You're rising our streets. It doesn't Yes, it does. They're not the enemy. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, there he is. This is a diversion. There he is. Guys. You're getting off the, you're getting off the subject, man. We're here for another reason. Come on. Guys, come on. They, come on, guys. This guy sounds like Joe Biden. This is a diversion. They're here to divert you. You're a diversion. Every time we're doing something, he runs up and he's like, no, guys. right. You don't tell us what we're here for. Why do you keep coming in everyone's boat in the next election? At one point, after being rhetorically blown out by kids two generations as junior, who took turns brutally mocking his capital attack plan, Ray Epps tried at last to come up with a good reason. But it didn't, it didn't go well. When forced to think on his feet, he mindlessly babbled that we need to go inside the Capitol because, quote, the Capitol is our enemy, unquote. Here's more. Epps was reduced to claiming that the, and we apologize for the profanity. We didn't know that was going to be in there. Epps was reduced to claiming that the building itself was the enemy. That's what motivated the whole shebang. Everyone else was in town for a Trump rally, but Ray Epps flew 2,300 miles from Arizona because of a vendetta against neoclassical architecture. 
but even more important than the cognitive and attitudinal similarities between Ray Epps and Scaffold Commander are the operational ones. Whether wittingly or unwittingly, Ray Epps, on the one hand, Scaffold Commander, on the other hand, formed a two-man team the entire afternoon. By miraculous coincidence, Ray Epps stationed himself immediately below Scaffold Commander at the media tower for the whole 90 minutes it took to move the crowd forward and then into the building. And then they have a video in which you see Ray Epps cordially interject himself into another man's selfie video filmed from this spot in the, vi- in the f- video footage. Ray Epps points back at the Washington Monument where President Trump still had seven minutes to go in his speech and said, it's good to be on the right side of history. In this video, you can see that Ray Epps chose the exact spot where the base of the command tower met the front of the Capitol Police line. From there, Ray Epps would have ultimate vision into both the rowdy vanguard front line of the crowd and a sense from the command tower crew of what was happening with the vast throngs of people behind him. At about 35 seconds in, Ray Epps is practically underneath the command tower, just an arm's length away. And you can also see, and I hope you'll look at the article. This this is amazing. It's fascinating what Darren J. Beatty of Revolver.News has done putting this all together. You can see from Ray Epps's point of view, just how close he is to the front of the Capitol building itself where he was staked out at a key position. Now, at this point, the clock read 1.03 p.m., so there were still seven minutes left in Trump's rally speech. Yet already, an enormous and growing crowd filled the horizon. That crowd was headed toward the very spot where Ray Epps was standing. Epps pointed back proudly to where Trump was speaking and beamed with a broad smile. Additional footage discovered by Revolver uh, reveals just how extensive Ray Epps' directorial efforts were from this key spot where the media tower met the police line. In the clip compilation, in the video they have embedded below in this article, you'll see Ray Epps variously coordinating with a man in an orange ski mask, looking and pointing up at the media tower, retaking his spot by the tower, getting maced by police, then bellowing, ah, I love it, as he temporarily retreats from the officer's gas attack. The beaten down crowd looked as if it would back off the police, but Ray Epps would simply not be denied. He stepped straight up to the police officers who had just showered the crowd in pepper spray. Ray Epps appeared to negotiate with the officers and struck a deal whereby Trump supporters could come back up to the front step if they simply remained there peacefully. Ray Epps then turned back to the crowd and told them, guys, listen up, up to the steps and stay there. We're going to stay there for a while. Just like scaffold commander above him, Ray Epps was successfully getting the crowd to move forward below. In fact, at the end of the video, next video clip, You can even hear scaffold commander scream, move forward, as Ray Epps instructs the crowd to return to the top of the steps. The sequence is so remarkable, it's worth highlighting its beginning, middle, and end again. First, the cops spray the crowd off the steps. Then Ray Epps steps up to negotiate with the police. Then, like Moses, returning from the mountaintop, 
Ray Epps pronounces to the crowd that their promised land is forward at the front step of the police line. This all happened just 30 minutes before the Capitol building itself was breached. There were by then tens of thousands of people behind Ray Epps. The following screenshot from when the crowd broke out and the Star-Spangled Banner behind Epps provides a sense of the dizzying volume of human flesh impacted by how Ray Epps and Scaffold Commander were coordinating the front line. So we have Scaffold Commander directing the body of the crowd from the tower above and Ray Epps directing the vanguard frontliners to the police line below, yet neither one of them has been prosecuted nor is either presently wanted by the FBI. But what makes the Scaffold Commander Ray Epps' affair complete is that they appear to work in tandem from start to finish the entire day of January 6th. Both of them set up positions at the initial 12.50 p.m. Big Bang breach site, and they did so before the Proud Boys arrived. The official story, you'll recall, says the Proud Boys group caused a riot. Again, we must point out how bizarre it is that so many individuals, so far Ray Epps, Scaffold Commander, and Fence Cutter Bulwark, who turn out to be key players in the Capitol breach, show up in the same area so early on in the day. Indeed, while Ray Epps was with others antagonizing police at the front of the barricades, Scaffold Commander was antagonizing police on the lawn just meters away. This this coincided almost exactly with the arrival of the Proud Boys marchers to the Peace Monument at 12.45 p.m., as if they knew the time for action was drawing near. They got video of that. Scaffold Commander then immediately left into action to help with fence removal as the Ray Epps breach team toppled the first barricades at 12.53 p.m. Well, they got his picture. They got his face. FBI doesn't want to know who he is. There are clear shots of Scaffold Commander and he is in view for hours. They got his face. And the FBI doesn't want to know who he is. It's unsettling enough that law enforcement seems to be protecting key operators like Scaffold Commander and Fence Cutter Bulwark. But the story gets stranger still. Scaffold Commander and Fence Cutter Bulwark were actually not the first to start removing barricades and fencing. In fact, they did not activate until Ray Epps' breach team set off the initial attack at the Epps breach site at 12.50 p.m. About 30 feet south of Ray Epps, right around the time the breach occurred at 12.50 p.m., a smaller squad of men were beginning the process of fence and barricade removal out of sight of the walkway police. So then they have a video of one of the very first booby trappers who they decide to dub Black Ski Mask. Cell phone metadata confirms a time stamp of 12.53 p.m., meaning Black Ski Mask's efforts to open up the lawn overlapped with the precise minute that Ray Epps took on the police. You'll note a familiar pattern. The crowd is begging Black Ski Mask to stop breaking the law, just like they rejected Ray Epps the night before. (laughs) 
So as that video ends, Black Ski Mask sees Ray Epps and his team have successfully breached the police line. He then runs over to the walkway. Epps has just cleared. From there, Black Ski Mask begins methodically dumping the police barricades over the side of the walkway wall. This clean removal process will create the impression to the 15,000 people already walking from the Trump speech that no police barricades were ever there in the first place. Black Ski Mask is the individual in the next video who says we're taking that expletive deleted today. So I'm not going to play that because I try to avoid, you know, obscenities on the Doc Washburn show. Anyway, Darren J. Beatty says, in part one, we described how the official story says an individual named Ryan Samsell started the riot by pushing the barricades first. But in in the above video, you can see the black ski mask quickly ends up ahead of Ryan Samsell and rushing up to the second police barricades, and both are behind Ray Epps. Black ski mask seemed much more than Samsell to know what that game plan was for the next phase of the breach. Oh, and they show him, they show his full face. And again, the FBI doesn't want to know who he is. Black ski mask has still not been arrested. Oh, okay, he does remain on the FBI Capitol Most Wanted list as suspect number 148. But there's just one problem with the situation. The FBI knows exactly who Black Ski Mask is already. For some reason, they're still not prosecuting him. The feds don't just have an idea on Black Ski Mask. They have an entire police report. And a shocking one at that. Just one day before January 6th, This black ski mask guy was yanked out of a bus by dozens of police officers who suspected his vehicle was packed with guns and bombs. His bus was stopped just in front of the U.S. Justice Department. Okay, read that again. The feds don't just have an ID on black ski masks. They have an entire police report and a shocking one at that. Just one day before January 6th, he was yanked out of a bus by dozens of police officers who suspected his vehicle was packed with guns and bombs. His bus was stopped just in front of the U.S. Justice Department. Now, you're probably wondering why you've never heard of this January 5th guns and explosives bus anywhere in regime media. We'll get to that below. But first, watch Black Ski Mask and his two bus buddies being interviewed after their colorful vehicle from North Carolina was swarmed by downtown D.C. police. Black Ski Mask, who begins speaking about 40 seconds in, appears reticent to give specifics on what happened, but says police pull them all out of their vehicle question them and ask for their DNA swab samples to match their identities to prints found on firearms and potential explosives. Now, this is interesting. Yeah, they're the ones. Uh, what happened? So first we got stopped in Maryland, and then they uh, then we start rolling in here looking for a place to oh park so we could go arm. rally for Trump. And then we get pulled over again by these guys, and then they get, get us all out again, and uh, they end up arresting the driver and the owner of the bus. Who yeah. what? Uh, I think... Possession or something for uh, like uh, unregistered firearms. That and um, the, that twenty-two, and then uh, that uh, the dude's needle that he had in his pocket. I guess a container of something. Oh, radio's on now. And then they try to get us to take uh, 
uh, they tried to get us to take a DNA swabs. Yeah. DNA swabs? Yeah. Okay, now we're going to hear from Black Ski Mask. Again, this is on January 5th, day before January 6th. Uh, if our DNA matched the weapons that were found on the vehicle. How many weapons? I don't know. How many, how many weapons did they find? I think one or two. They were pretty quick at getting They were also hinting that there was a bomb on the bus. That's so weird that they asked y'all for DNA. What did you find in there? Do you know? Sir, I can't comment. Is there anyone who uh, who's authorized to comment? Nope. The guy saying I can't comment on was actually a D.C. police officer. So, <clears throat> the details of this video means there must be, as a matter of law, a filed police report with black ski masks, real legal name on it, sitting in federal law enforcement's possession. And yet, for some strange reason, 11 months after January 6th, the FBI is not prosecuting this man for any of the myriad felonies and conspiracy charges any U.S. attorney could present as a layup indictment. Instead, the black ski mask guy remains protected in the strange purgatory of the FBI Capitol Most Wanted list, just like Ray Epps was before the public found out his identity. Afterwards, the FBI purged and deleted his files then denied all knowledge of his existence. The existence of a police report means you don't even need all the crystal clear 4K HD face shots of this black ski mask guy floating around, showing his face, his build, and his associates from every angle. Now ask yourself, had you ever heard about this gun-filled, possibly bomb-filled, hippies for Trump bus the Fed stopped in front of the Justice Department before Revolver just told you about it? You probably didn't because the event went completely unreported by D.C. media the day before January 6th and in the aftermath that followed. The only contemporaneous report Revolver found was a single blue check Twitter account whose tweets on the bizarre event are reproduced in screenshots and videos below. First, the bus drives slowly past D.C. police headquarters at 2.10 p.m., January 5th, then is quickly stopped and swarming with agents in at least eight separate police cars and vans. So the blue check. The blue check. Who is this blue check? Let's uh, let's find out. Uh, I, I want to know. Uh, let's see. Ale. Let's see. Ale tweets news. Okay, Alejandro Alvarez, journalist and photographer covering social movements, protests, geopolitics. Oh, digital editor at WTOP. Oh, that's the big news station. The big news radio. No, not news talk, not talk radio. That's a big news station in Washington, D.C., So this one guy is talking about it January 5th. He says, all right, important update on the hippies for Trump bus. 
has been stopped near the 9th Street Tunnel and surrounded by loads of police right outside the Justice Department of all places. Looks like it's being searched. And there's video by 2.57 p.m. Police are standing uh, top of the bus, taking the roof apart with bomb-sniffing canine dog squads at the bus's base. It's Alejandro uh, Alvarez says police are poking around for something in the back and stuff strapped to the roof with a few canine units. They've got the bus cordoned off with yellow tape, but they're, they've drawn down their presence a bit. There were seriously tons of police earlier. Then more video from the scene. And Darren J. Beatty at Revolver.News says, So this happened at broad daylight, with traffic stopped for likely over an hour, right in the heart of downtown D.C. The day before January 6th, a man from this bus is one of the very first so-called insurrectionists on the scene of the Capitol the next day, is removing barricades before the official story says the illegal activity started. And yet today, the search engine results for black ski masks, terror scare, are effectively non-existent. You have to read local North Carolina papers to eke out scant details of what happened on January 5th. How could there be a total media blackout on January 5th about a guns and explosives cache discovery, C-A-C-H-E, in a bus parked in front of the U.S. Justice Department just one day before the major Trump rally and the all-important Senate certification vote? Now, Washington, D.C., is a 93% Democrat voting bastion. Authorities would normally be stampeding toward the closest press podium to give frothing D.C. journalists all the salacious details of a catch like this. The responding officers would all be given promotions and medals. We're talking about busting a bus full of so-called Trump supporters with guns and explosives in broad daylight parked in front of the Justice Department. Why was there total radio silence? Who ordered the story squashed? Did top top brass in Washington, D.C. or federal law enforcement intervene to keep the story quiet? That way, the next day's events on January 6th would more convincingly look like they took D.C. police completely by surprise? Remember, this is January 5th. We know then-Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund made an urgent request for backup personnel on January 4th, but was denied. He pled to have a state of emergency declared at the Capitol on January 4th, but was denied. Yet the very next day, January 5th, guns and explosives rolled past D.C. police headquarters, parked at the Justice Department, got swarmed by dozens of officers, agents of bomb-sniffing dogs, and the Capitol Police Chief's support requests still got denied. Did the Capitol Police even know about the guns and explosives bus? Was the incident kept hidden from them, too? We know with high probability the black ski mask guy's colorful bus was headed for the Capitol rally. It had the words, Stop the Steal, and Trump 2020 graffitied on its bright paint. The fact the black ski mask guy, one of the very first January 6th breach team operators alongside Ray Epps, was pulled out of this bus, shaken down for DNA samples, mysteriously let go, and remains an unprosecuted face on the FBI's most wanted list 11 months later, raises extraordinary questions for the Justice Department as to whether black ski mask is being protected just like Ray Epps is being protected. Based on the badge on his tactical gear, and they also link to his extraordinary communications equipment. 
It appears that Black Ski Mask is from Texas. Like Ray Epps traveling 2,300 miles from Arizona, we're talking about so-called Trump supporters who flew thousands of miles for a Trump rally but skipped the actual rally to commit a pointless barricade break-in instead. But even Black Ski Mask was not the first person to trespass onto the restricted Capitol lawn while the Ray Epps breach team was leading the frontal assault. That first-on-the-field distinction, some Capitol researchers believe, belongs to yet another unindicted man also missing from the FBI's wanted list. We'll now close out our roster of key unindicted breach figures with one final profile of this man dubbed the Be Civil Guy. Now, the name comes from the man's strange actions after Ray Epson Company overran the barricades. Be Civil Guy appears to shout, follow me, and move down as he moved down the walkway to the next police barricade. He repeatedly and quite muscularly implored the crowd to be civil as he did so. He's the man with a blue and white bullhorn. In the next video they have here, a few seconds before the scaffold commander throws his hands up and shouts, come on. One has to wonder where these megaphones simply, were these megaphones simply handed out a standard issue? How come so many key operators using blue and white megaphones are still unindicted 11 months later? But we digress. If all you saw was the above video, you'd think the Be Civil guy was just being helpful by urging people to be civil. But there's a big problem with that theory. The Be Civil guy was the first guy who broke upfield, tore the second police line, way past the restricted area fencing. And he did so before Ray Epson Company breached the first police line at 12.50 p.m. and before any fencing came down from the efforts of Black Ski Mask and his team. How do we know that? Well, they got a screenshot which is from just 30 seconds before Ray Epson Company will breach the first police line as streams of people will shoot up the walkway, and you'll see the Be Civil guy is first and farthest up the field. At this moment in time, no breach has happened yet, no officers have been harmed or forced back, and there's no guarantee that the Trump rally will get out of hand that day as no barricades have yet been pushed over. At this moment in time, below, immediately before the breach, the Be Civil guy is the deepest so-called trespasser of any of the tens of thousands of Trump supporters in Washington, D.C. While the Be Civil guy did his Braveheart march up the lawn, breach operators like the black ski mask guy were far behind him, hugging close to the perimeter fences they had begun removing. Yet while everyone else is fixated left at the drama of the Ray Epps breach team, the Be Civil guy was bolting right toward a separate Capitol Police team, And they got another screenshot where you can see him approach them with his hands up trying to flag them down. Now, remember, this is happening before the barricade breach would afford safety in numbers to people running up the lawn. Bystanders behind the perimeter fence openly warned that those on the lawn don't realize they will be shot. That's a quote. So what explains be civil guy's bravery or insanity? What motivated him to illegally trespass way up the lawn by himself? Then wave down a whole squad of Capitol cops stationed at the second perimeter by himself before the first police perimeter line had even been breached yet? What kind of January 6th protester is so extremist? He brings a giant bullhorn to the rally, then risks death 
as the first man to illegally bum-rush the Capitol lawn, but is also so anti-extremist he blows off Trump's final speech in office, uses his bullhorn to play hall monitor to a minor side crowd. And if he wanted to stop the crowd's law-breaking, why didn't he tell the crowd to move back behind the first barricades instead of telling them come down to the inner perimeter of the next police line? If you didn't know any better, you'd think the B-Civil guy was some kind of undercover, plainclothes Secret Service agent who knew a breach was about to happen, and he rushed up the lawn to warn U.S. Capitol Police. But one can only imagine what would happen to the narrative if the very first insurrectionist to illegally invade the hallowed Capitol grounds was just an undercover fed with foreknowledge. We don't know whether that's true with the be civil guy, and ultimately only the Justice Department can tell us, but a subsequent sequence in which he's the star, raises unsettling questions. In the next video clip, the B-Civil guy rushes in to stop another man from breaking a window at the Western Plaza. The full context of the window breaking is available with an incredible clip of the crowd, which they link to, yet again urging Capitol protesters to refrain from breaking the law. For our purposes, B-Civil guy's appearance begins at about 20 seconds in, but we left in the first 20 seconds for context. Okay, let's play this. Okay, guys starting to break a window. Or trying to. People are booing him for that. Okay, now, here comes the be civil guy. Okay, we don't need the cussing. Three important things deserve mention. First, note how professional the be civil guy is with his physicality. He has no fear at all seizing a beefy, ski-masked man, wielding a crowbar by the scruff of his neck, neutralizing him and dressing him down. 23 seconds in this video, you see B-Civil Guy actually pat down the man's chest before seizing his collar as if his instinctive second nature was to do a law enforcement pat-down on the perp to see if he has more weapons or a firearm. The B-Civil Guy, like Ray Epps, is an absolute alpha at crowd control. In other words, he seems to be very professional. Second, and much more importantly, B-Civil Guy was not trying to stop stop people from going into the Capitol. This video sequence happened about 2.56 in the afternoon. The Capitol had been, been already breached more than 40 minutes earlier, first at 2.12. The front main entrance to the Capitol was already wide open, with hundreds simply walking in the front door and staying with their, within the velvet ropes. By 225, and we know B Civil Guy knows this because 39 seconds into the video, which I stopped, B Civil Guy points to the other side of the Capitol and reassures the window breakers associate that, quote, we're getting in, we're getting in, unquote. B Civil Guy either wanted or was fine with Trump supporters going inside the Capitol. He just wanted people to do so peacefully. This is effectively a carbon copy of the strange modus operandi of Ray Epps. As we described in our October report, if you want to see what this walking philosophical paradox looks like in action, here's a clip of Ray Epps patrolling the very front police lines of the Capitol's Western Plaza at approximately 3.15 p.m. January 6th at the height of the day's mania 
nearly two and a half hours after Epps and his breach team appeared to coordinate the toppling of the Capitol's east side police barricades. This was also nearly a full hour after the U.S. Capitol building itself had already been breached, with Epps' stated mission of breaching the Capitol accomplished and hundreds of Trump supporters already inside, Epps' mission magically switched to calming the crowd down, assuring them we've already made our point, and ensuring that no more of his apparently fellow officers got hurt that afternoon. Check this out. I would have came locked and loaded if I knew this was happening. Take a step back. Take a step back. We're holding ground. We're not trying to get people hurt. They don't want to get hurt. You don't want to get hurt. Just back up. Ray Epps stole his local Arizona newspaper just five days after January 6th. Going into the Capitol peacefully meant we would go in the doors like everyone else and not break windows doing so. The be civil guy seems to be following the exact same playbook or perhaps instructions as Ray Epps. Arizona Central, big newspaper, Phoenix, Arizona, reported when read a transcript of the comments, Ray Epps said the only thing that meant, the only thing that meant is we would go in the doors like everyone else. It was totally, totally wrong the way they went in. To compound the mystery, even the man be civil guy stops from breaking the Capitol glass at 2.56 p.m. is unindicted. He remains safe in the bosom of the FBI Capitol most wanted list as suspect number 283. Despite a full face dox. In other words, they got this guy's full face on camera. And thousands of hours of footage the feds could use to track his movements and associates. You'd think he'd be a priority, given he's smashing windows with a crowbar and frequently seen speaking into an earpiece. However, at this point, too little information about this man dubbed Carhartt Wasp is known to form an educated opinion into how he fits into the larger picture. We simply point out his interaction with the be civil guy because of the latter's role in being first up the field in the Ray Epps breach team. All right, so Ray Epps saw it all coming. Any simple study of Revolver's Ray Epps video library confirms beyond all reasonable doubt that Ray Epps had advanced knowledge of a capital perimeter breach that would occur where and when it did on January 6th. In one telling exchange on January 5th, after Ray Epps told the crowd, we need to go into the Capitol, a young man insulted Epps. Then finally hurled invective, you're not going to do expletive deleted. You're not going to storm the Capitol. You're not going to do anything. A funny thing then happened. Ray Epps looked up and away, beamed with a cocky, knowing smile, and then raised his hand in a gesture that indicated, keep talking, kid. You just watch and see. Ray Epps was absolutely oozing with confidence. He appeared to know something the rest of the crowd did not. Ray Epps was then up bright and early recruiting people to fall into his booby trap the morning of January 6th. In our Part 1 report, we described how prior to Ray Epps leading the Big Bang breach team at 12.53 p.m., he parked himself at the entrance of the Washington Monument at 10.24 a.m. 
This was the site where hundreds of thousands of Trump supporters were making their way early in the morning to get coveted law positions to hear their president speak. But 1024 a.m. was an odd time for Rahabs to be staked out at the entrance to Trump's speaking venue. Trump was not scheduled to speak until noon, and we know from Ray Epps' 12.50 p.m. breach activities, he didn't stick around for Trump's speech. Now, Revolver has discovered multiple additional recruiting missions that Ray Epps was engaged in, dipping early into the 9 a.m. hour. Notice below how Ray Epps used the same damsel in distress language as Scaffold Commander did by saying, we need your help. Epps also made sure people knew the Capitol is in that direction so they wouldn't take an unconventional path or circuitous path and thereby miss the precise walkway entrance the breach team would pry open while the masses were still at Trump's speech. As soon as President Trump is finished speaking, we are going to the Capitol. It's that direction. That's where our true problems lie. President Trump is done speaking. We are going to the Capitol. That's where our problems are. Okay, folks, we need your help. As soon as President Trump stops speaking, we are going to the Capitol. Capitol's in that direction. Let people know. Spread the word. Okay, this means Ray Epps came to the Trump rally, came to the Trump speech early in the morning with the sole intention of recruiting a mob to follow on the heels of the Capitol breach team he would personally oversee while Trump was speaking. The very breach team we have covered in this report whose operators would remove the fencing, signage, and barricades before the masses would arrive at the Capitol. So let's put this all into context. Ray Epps flew 2,300 miles from Phoenix, Arizona to Washington, D.C. for a Trump rally, supposedly as a Trump supporter. Ray Epps arrived at the rally entrance more than two hours early, camped out to constantly shout recruiting instructions about coming to the Capitol after the speech, but then skipped out on the speech itself because he was too busy personally orchestrating the Big Bang breach team that kicked off the riot and tore down the fencing, barricades, and signage, which made rally-goers totally unaware of the legal booby trap they had walked into. So, if Ray Epps was acting acting on instructions from a government handler from any federal agency, FBI, ATF, Pentagon, DHS, DEA, anything. We now are talking about perhaps the single most egregious caught-on-camera intelligence operation in our lifetimes. Okay, the synthesis. We now know how they did it. It increasingly appears that we now know how rogue elements of federal agencies pulled off the January 6th FedSurrection. If the Ray Epps breach team hypothesis is correct, a group of government-sponsored provocateurs were all instructed separately by handlers to arrive at the peace monument in front of the Capitol before 12.45 p.m., where they front-ran the arrival of the Proud Boys who would serve as a scapegoat for the breach. Then, after the breach, key operators, such as Ray Epps and the scaffold commander, directed the crowd to move forward while others removed barricades, fencing, and signage. There's simply no way the FBI did not know the Proud Boys March would end up at the Peace Monument just after 12.45 p.m. That march was led by Proud Boy leader Joe Biggs, 
who is an FBI informant who says he spoke often with his bureau contacts. Joe Biggs, proud boy boss, Enrique Tario was also an FBI informant, and the FBI was reading their cell phone group chat messages ahead of time. Ray Epps, for his part, may not have understood any of the bigger picture. The former Oath Keeper, state chapter president of Arizona, is indeed a longtime government informant, as it fully appears. He may be very much used to getting text messages from an agency contact telling him, hey, go to the right-wing event and test the crowd for troublemakers who are looking to flush out the crazies. Certainly, Ray Epps made it sound like he was no novice to crowd control at large-scale protest events. His Facebook profile picture was a previous mass march on Washington, and he was fond of telling those around him he's been, quote, doing this for a long time. Moreover, we know Ray Epps feels morally conflicted about what happened. He may still consider himself a patriot and realize only later he was used like a pawn. How else can one synthesize Ray Epps's cryptic and tortured quasi-confession to the Arizona Central newspaper just five days after January 6th, where he was torn between the statements, quote, I think the truth needs to get out, unquote, and, quote, they were supposed to go in the doors like everyone else, unquote. What truth did Ray Epps mean when he said the truth needs to get out? Why did Ray Epps believe the crowd was supposed to go in the Capitol a certain way, in other words, through the front Columbus entrance doors, rather than breaking and entering the rear Capitol windows? Who was Ray Epps working for, and who told him how things are supposed to go? Okay, here's the quote from the newspaper, Arizona Central. A Queen Creek man who acknowledges he was in Washington, D.C. for last week's rally by President Donald Trump also appears to be shown in videos taken the night before talking about plans to go inside the U.S. Capitol. In one video that was widely viewed on Twitter, he can be heard saying, I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. I'll say it. We need to go into the Capitol. Ray Epps told the Arizona Republic in a brief telephone interview Monday that he had traveled to the Capitol for the event and that he had been advised by an attorney not to speak about it. He said, I think the truth needs to get out. He said he would be putting out a statement on Tuesday and added, I didn't do anything wrong. A video online appears to show him saying, we're here to defend the Constitution, and we need to go into the Capitol. Asked about it, he first told the Arizona Republic he would need to see the video. When read a transcript of the comments, he said the only thing that meant is we go in the doors like everyone else. It was totally, totally wrong the way they went in. On top of the evidence above, consider this this perspective. The feds paid their bottomless roster of secret operatives a whopping $548 million in 2020 alone for sting jobs all over the country. 20% of their informant roster is made up of longtime informants who effectively make a career out of it. It's even quite banal for long-time informants to be explicitly authorized in advance to go out and commit crimes, with federal handlers granting permission for informants to carry out almost 23,000 crimes in the 2011 to 2014 reporting period alone. So if Ray Epps and others were granted permission by the handlers ahead of time to participate in crimes, it would not be a big deal inside the Bureau. It would be standard operating procedure. The FBI even gave key government informant 
and Three Percenters chapter founder Steve Robeson authorization to commit crimes during the Whitmer kidnapping plot hoax. We don't have public data on the volume of pre-authorized crimes beyond 2014, but we do know FBI Director Christopher Wray began doubling his right-wing extremism investigations in April 2020, seven months before January 6th. We also know the FBI and DHS issued threat assessments naming right-wing domestic extremist groups as the nation's number one top law enforcement priority and terrorism threats in the summer of 2020, and that the FBI is bound by DOJ guidelines to proportion its informant roster to its threat assessments. So January 6th turns out to be the biggest Fed fest in U.S. history. We can see clearly now in retrospect how the table was set. All right, so the conclusion here of this remarkable article by Darren J. Beatty in Revolver.News. Conclusion, the time is now for full court legal and legislative action. You know the fix is in because we do not have Ray Epps' phone records from January 6th. A full and complete record of every text message, every phone call, and every wire conversation Ray Epps made on January 5th and 6th would tell us exactly who else was privy to the Capitol breach plan. It would also very likely tell us which federal agencies were giving the orders and which agents in particular were handling the many disparate members of the breach team. The sham January 6th House Select Committee has now subpoenaed over 100 civilian cell phone records. But you know the fix is in because they've stayed away from subpoenaing the cell phone records of Ray Epps. And Ray Epps is just chilling at home these days under the apparent protection of the FBI in Phoenix, Arizona. We know that in the FBI-orchestrated Whitmer kidnapping plot, you know, the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, October of 2020, just three months before January 6th, we know that in that FBI-orchestrated plot, key FBI informants received text messages from handlers to maximize attendance of the patsies at locations where their presence would be construed as an overt act and furtherance of a conspiracy. Agreement and overt act are the two legal elements of a federal conspiracy charge. Congressional Republicans must now demand the phone records and full and complete account of Ray Epps' relationship with the federal government. Subpoenas should be flying at Sean Call, the special agent in charge of the Phoenix FBI field office, faster than Merrick Garland, can run from an honest question. January 6th defense lawyers must seek court-ordered subpoenas for discovery production related to the federal government's records on such individuals as Ray Epps and the scaffold commander guy. If Ray Epps is a Fed and your client walked through the Peace Monument Gate or is induced to trespass because of the Big Bang breach team's booby trap, you have an entrapment case and a potential affirmative defense. The Justice Department is legally required under Brady rules to provide you with all potentially exculpatory evidence related to that defense, and you should be prepared to play tapes of Ray Epps to the jury showing how the riot started in the first place. If the scaffold commander guy is a Fed and your client was induced to move forward and be thrust into a breaching throng, you have an entrapment case. Fill up the Capitol is a direct order. That goes far beyond the strong, suggestive language the government informants are required to stay within in order to avoid entrapment. Finally, Ray Epps, if you're reading this, we know that you're conflicted and that you want 
the truth to come out. You can still be a hero. Simply come forward and tell the world your story. What really happened on January 6th? Wow, 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 wow. What an incredible article there from the great Darren J. Beatty at Revolver.News. It's entitled Meet Ray Epps, Part 2, Damning New Details Emerge Exposing Massive Web of Unindicted Operators at the Heart of January 6th. It wasn't an insurrection. It was a fedsurrection, obviously. Obviously. That, I'll tell you what, you know, in, in a sane world, Darren J. Beatty would get a, a, a Pulitzer for this. Instead, they'll probably try to figure out a, a way to throw him in jail. <sighs> yes, Paul, the Apostle Paul to the Church of Galatia, have I now become your enemy for telling you the truth? Look, uh, speaking of uh, setups by the feds, in '09 they set us up with Obamacare. Well, that's what we call it. They call it the Affordable Care Act, which clearly it wasn't. Now, if you're like most Americans, Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, made your health care more expensive, right? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you need to get a hold of my buddy Art Wilborn. His website is entitled MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. When you go to MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, the first thing you see is the big, bold letters, Affordable Plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums. Personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays, no copays. What? So people see that and they're like, "Where did I sign up?" The button right below it, where it says "Schedule Call Now." You click on that button at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You get your free consultation, and my buddy Art Wilborn makes sure there are no gaps in your coverage. And also, a really great thing. With MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, you get an insurance plan that won't insult your deeply held religious beliefs. You don't have to cover abortion and stuff like that, some of the stuff that's on some of the Obamacare plans. No, none of that. Go to MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. Affordable plans, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays, and just click the button that says Schedule Call Now. Book your free consultation at MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, fantastic. Fantastic. Man, oh man, oh man. What an article. The whole thing. The whole thing was a setup on January 6th. The whole thing was a setup. Somebody on the uh, the Podbean app says, listening live, says so many people forgot about the Christmas Day bombing in Nashville last year in front of uh, Dominion servers at AT&T. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Somebody else said, keep it up, Doc. Thank you for preaching the truth. Hey, you know, um, 
I'm honored to have the opportunity. I'm really honored to have the opportunity. Now, Dr. Simone Gold, one of the frontline doctors, reporting the CDC is withdrawing its standing request to the FDA to grant emergency use authorization for COVID-19 PCR tests. After 20 months of lies, the CDC can no longer hide that its use of COVID-19 PCR tests was fake science, but true fear-mongering. How about that? Uh, By the way, so yesterday there were reports Democrat Congressman Jason Crow from Colorado said he tested positive for coronavirus. Quote, I'm thankful to be fully vaccinated and boosted and experiencing only mild symptoms. The vaccine is safe and effective, unquote. Also, yesterday, Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat in New Jersey, said he tested positive for COVID-19. Quote, I'm beyond grateful to have received two doses of vaccine and more recently a booster. I'm certain that without them, I would be doing much worse, unquote. Yesterday, the fake Native American, Senator Elizabeth Focahontas Warren, said, quote, Today I tested positive with a breakthrough case. Thankfully, I only experiencing mild symptoms and am grateful for the protection provided against serious illnesses that comes from being vaccinated and boosted, unquote. Congressman Thomas Massey out of Kentucky said, I'm noticing a trend. Noticing a trend. Odd about the timing, isn't it? And, and, and the fact that um, they all said basically the same thing. That's something else, isn't it? That's, uh, that's really something else. I just... Uh, You know, I don't want to go too far on a limb here. But it's almost like maybe they're all lying and just doing the Jesse Smollett thing and and, uh, synchronizing the timing. Know what I'm saying? Just uh, just a thought. Just a thought. Okay. I got another thought. Because what we do here on the Doc Washburn Show is, as often as possible, tell uncomfortable truths. Uncomfortable truths, okay? We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. The Belize and freedom, your freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV online the way you want to and have it delivered to your front door. RedRiverYourWay.com brings you the tweet of the day, and there's so many uh, worthy contestants be tweet of the day. Let's check this out. Okay, first of all, Adam Milstein, 
co-founder of the Milstein Institute, American advocate and philanthropist, has a picture of the diversity and inclusion senator at the University of Southern California who tweeted out, I want to kill every blankety-blank Zionist. Tweeted that out in May of this year. Now, she shared other anti-Semitic opinions, too, in response the university, University of Southern California has done absolutely nothing. So the tweet of the day is former Director of National Intelligence Richard Grinnell under the Trump administration responding, saying this should be a reason to deny her a valid visa. She is a guest in our country, and she's threatening to kill people. University of, South Car- university of Southern California is hostile to conservatives, but they allow this. Where are the USC alumni? Speak the hell up. So, uh, so yeah, that's your tweet of the day. Well, let's look a little bit more closely at this at this uh, story here. Okay. Or a Fox, California inclusion student senator blasted for a kill Zionist tweet. High level of hypocrisy. A student diversity and inclusion senator for University of Southern California tweeted, I want to kill every blankety-blank Zionist in May, along with several other opinions being considered anti-Semitic. In May, Yasmin Mashayek, a diversity and inclusion senator for the University of Southern California, Viterbi Graduate Student Associate, said in a now-deleted tweet, I want to kill every blankety-blank Zionist. The Viterbi Graduate Student Association's website is now down for maintenance, but previously listed her as DEI Senator. DEI stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Ms. Mashayak has posted several other social media comments that students and faculty at USC found questionable. In June, she tweeted, Death to Israel and its bitch to the U.S. Another tweet in June stated, if you're not for the complete destruction of Israel and the occupation forces, then you're anti-Palestinian. Ms. Mashiach even voiced support for the terrorist organization Hamas in May, tweeting, Yes, I blanking love Hamas now, STFU, which means shut the blank up. In a tweet on June 21st, she said, Zionists are going to blanking pay. She doubled down on her tweets on a podcast by Palestine in America December 2nd, saying she feels no obligation to apologize. She says, I still don't feel any pressure to change any stances or apologize for anything at all. Which would imply that if she felt enough pressure, she would pretend to apologize. Fashi spoke with several USC students who believe it's hypocritical for a diversity senator in a student organization to make these types of statements. Molly Davis, a student at USC, Told Fox News the incident shows a high level of hypocrisy. She said, I don't like speaking absolutes, but it seems like it's always the people who stand for so-called inclusion that harbor the most hate in their hearts. While students are being forced to go through a virtual diversity training, DEI senators are tweeting how they want to literally end the lives of humans who support the Jewish people. It's dark and severely twisted. 
I can't imagine how every Jewish people, how every Jewish person feels in the presence of Yashmin. Davis suggested if a DEI student leader tweeted that she wanted to kill every Black Lives Matter supporter, there would be more action. Oh, yeah, there would. She said if a student senator in the DEI department tweeted that they wanted to kill every Black Lives Matter supporter, the L.A. Times and Daily Trojan would milk that headline for weeks, and USC's campus would be swarmed with protesters, rightfully so. However, it's a different story every time when the Jewish people or anyone supporting Jewish people are attacked. She said, I'd say it's not really something that anyone should be saying, but especially not someone in that position. That's just, oh, that's another student who remained anonymous. Yeah, I wonder why. wonder why. I wonder how many people she's already killed. Uh, how many people she's uh, intending to kill. Know what I'm saying? I mean, um, but again, you're you're Islamophobic if you speak out against this sort of thing. Know what I'm saying? You're Islamophobic if you speak out of. Uh, about this thing. Okay, uh, a little bit of breaking news before we get out of here. Julie Kelly, the great Julie Kelly over at uh, American Greatness. Moments ago, the hearing began in the case of Ryan Nichols, the January 6th detainee, asking to be released and the removal of the government's protective order on three hours of crucial surveillance video from January 6th. 83-year-old Judge Hogan, a Reagan appointee, is presiding. She says, I don't have a lot of hope Hogan will release Ryan Nichols. He refused to release George Tanios, accused of spraying Brian Sicknick, even though Tanios was not charged with spraying Brian Sicknick himself. D.C. Circuit overturned Judge Hogan's order. Hogan notes Nichols has been behind bars for 11 months. He's in the D.C. Gulag. First time Hogan is hearing a motion for release. He cites Munchell and Cressman rulings by D.C. Circuit, which set parameters for all January 6th defendants and his ruling on Tanios, now addressing the three hours of video. The Press Coalition, 16 major news organizations, also want protective order removed, so the video will come out. DOJ has no objection. Judge Hogan grants the Press Coalition request to allow access to protective videos. Now he'll proceed with Attorney McBride's motion to release Nichols. The burden, he notes, is on the DOJ. So we'll see what happens with that. We will see what happens with that. Guys, I appreciate y'all. I appreciate you getting the word out about the Doc Washman podcast, which you can now listen to live every day at docwashmanshow.com. If you so choose to listen live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, instead of waiting for the podcast to be downloaded, in summation, you've been listening to episode 49 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solution, 7th floor of the ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempy the 10th. And that's the way it is. Monday, December 20th, 2021.